Chapter Six of Daylight Land by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: The Capitalist. Great contest follows, and much learned dust involves the combatants, each claiming truth and truth disclaiming both. One of the largest cities on the continent will stand here within fifty years," said the judge, and he spoke as a man accustomed to know the reasons for his judgment. The sentence was delivered to our group as we stood on the wharf at Port Arthur, watching the huge steamer just in from Owen Sound unload its monstrous cargo of freight. Its passengers, having landed an hour before, were now rolling westward to the prairies, the mountains, and the shores of the mild ocean. "'I think just as you do,' said the gentleman near us. "'I think as you do, sir. And,' he added firmly, I have put up money on my faith. The voice sounded familiar, very familiar. I glanced at him, but I could not place him for an instant. And then, why, certainly, the years do change us, don't they? Gray? Of course he should be gray, and I thought of my own head, and, advancing a step, reached out my hand. Mr. Pepperell, I said, I am delighted to greet you. I did not recognize you at first. Your hair is whiter than it once was. Every strong stalk flowers at last, eh? I did not recognize you either, replied Mr. Pepperell, returning my greeting with cordiality. I didn't recognize you either at first, but it wasn't because of your whiter head, but because of the bronze on your face. You look like an Indian from the plains. I feel like an Indian at least three times a day, I replied, and the judge here is making an epicure of me. Mr. Pepperell, allow me to present you to Judge John Doe of San Francisco, I added. Judge, this is Mr. Pepperell of Boston, a capitalist of the hub, and, better than all, a gentleman. I am happy to be the means of bringing you two together. I said it heartily, for I knew them both to be gentlemen of standing, amiability, and wit. May I ask, Mr. Pepperell, I said after he had been presented to the other members of the party, May I ask on what grounds you expect a city to be built here in this great opening between the mountains on the shores of Thunder Bay? The site of great cities, answered Mr. Pepperell, and he spoke with that positiveness of expression and breadth of knowledge which characterizes the successful American. The site of great cities is a matter of geography. When God formed the continent, he designated where every city on it should be located— Granted, a population north and west of Manhattan Island and New York must be built. Populate New England and Boston is the inevitable result. The Lakeine Rapids and an inhabited Canada necessitate Montreal. The prairies of the west must have a commercial center, and hence Chicago. Now look at this site. These mountains, hills, even the islands in front of us are full of precious ores, iron, copper, and copper too— free from sulphur, silver, gold, nickel. Look at this harbor, fenced on all sides from gales, deep, roomy, freed from ice each spring earlier than any other on the lake. Into it empties that river, the Kemenistiquia yonder, up whose quiet channel a steamer with a draft of twenty-six feet can steam for four miles. Was there ever such a natural wharfage given for commerce, made ready, so to speak, for the hand of man to use, as those eight miles of level river banks? Look at that elevator there. 
it holds 1,300,000 bushels of wheat. Within 60 days, two more of the same size will stand beside it. Four millions of bushels accommodated, where two years ago commerce had not laid down a single grain. How many elevators, do you think, Judge, will be on that bank ten years from today? Last year, those prairies to the west produced 13 million bushels of wheat. This year, they will yield 20 millions. Four years ago, scientific men were disputing whether wheat could grow on that soil or not. The wheat area west of us is larger than the whole wheat area of the United States. The soil of this vast belt is virgin soil, rich, inexhaustible. I'm talking from knowledge, gentlemen. I have been there and looked into this thing, and I know that under decent cultivation every acre will yield forty bushels of finer quality than the wheat of California or Russia. How much wheat do you think will be raised in that vast wheat belt yonder, twenty-five years hence? And how is it to reach the markets of the world? It must go south to the States, or it is coming here to Thunder Bay. These are the only two directions it can take in its exit, and so I say— I've backed my faith with my money, that here on this beautiful site will spring up one of the great cities of the continent. Mr. Pepperell's presentation on the subject was listened to with gravest attention by all the group, in which, if the fact must be stated, there was more money-seeking investment than is often found on any particular wharf. The Yankee can look up a long perspective with a good dollar at the end of it, and this northwestern section of the continent is already attracting a deal of attention in the States from shrewd, far-sighted men. "'Mr. Pepperell,' remarked the judge, "'my own judgment, based on careful forecast, sustains your opinion fully. "'Illinois is a great state. "'It's larger in arable acres than England and Wales, "'with their population of twenty-six millions. "'The state of Illinois can support twenty millions of population easily.' but the productive area of this western Canada is ten times larger than the state of Illinois. Two hundred millions of people can be supported, richly supported, north of the 49th parallel. Five hundred miles north of the international boundary you can sow wheat three weeks earlier than you can in Dakota. The climate is milder in the valley of the Peace River than it is in Manitoba. These great facts of nature are significant and impressive. Nonetheless, so because up to this time they have had little advertisement, and are known to a comparative few, yes, sir, you are right, there must be a great city here. The fact is, resumed Mr. Pepperell, and he spoke with the enthusiasm which characterizes the American when speaking of his country, the people of this continent have only just got started. On our side of the line we are sixty millions, which are only the seed of the six hundred millions that are to be. People talk a deal about the capacity of this continent to produce bushels and pounds, grain and meat. Why don't they figure on that higher problem, the capacity to produce men? Granted a good climate, a productive soil, cheap fuel, absence of war, popularized knowledge, and the ennobling influences of liberty, and what limit can you put to the development of such a people, not in resources alone, but in numbers? Why should they not multiply and increase and possess the land? Unless we go cutting each other's throats, half the present population of the globe will be living on this continent within three hundred years. God, said the judge, I was born too early. I have a friend, I remarked, who predicts, and he isn't a venner either, that Chicago will ultimately have a population of fifteen millions. I haven't a doubt of it, 
said one of the group calmly. "'Eh? What?' exclaimed the judge. "'How is it you're so positive?' "'It is a matter of knowledge,' returned the man. "'Absolute knowledge.' "'Knowledge?' exclaimed the judge. "'How is that?' The gentleman looked at the judge contemplatively for a few moments, then said, "'I was born there.' "'Lord!' exclaimed the judge. "'Where's the train?' And breaking up with laughter, we started for our car. No sooner were we on board the train and collected in the smoking-room, that most companionable spot for smokers on the earth, than the spirit of the group underwent a characteristic change. With one or two exceptions, it happened that we represented the great progressive republic, and that large class of travelers, whose number is legion, that are today with lavish expenditures ransacking the globe a class who go armed with more stories and more cash than the world had ever carried round it before. On the wharf, Mr. Pepperell was the impersonation of business ability and foresight, sharp, incisive, edged like a razor, a man whose forecast was that of a statesman and whose language was that of a prince among financiers. With millions to invest, he had, on the one hand, a full sense of financial responsibility, and the other, the courage of his judgment. For he had examined on the field of his investments for himself, not trusting to the eyes or the words of another, and hence he knew the almost boundless resources of the country, and had full faith in its development. But once in the car, he was no longer a financier, no longer a businessman, no longer a speculator, but an American traveler, jovial, quaint, humorous, vivacious of speech, and loaded to the muzzle with anecdotes. "'You would never suspect, gentlemen, perhaps,' said Mr. Pepperell, as he took a cigar from his mouth and blew a dozen rings of blue smoke into the air. "'You would never suspect that I once was busted completely, overwhelmingly busted. In forty-eight, I crossed the plains. I was young. I had an attack of the gold fever. Had it bad. I made some money and got a good deal of experience.' but on the whole luck was against me. After ten years of knocking about, during which I was the rolling stone of the proverb, with hundreds of other old-time Californians, I started for the Fraser. My first experience in British Columbia was at American Bar below Black Canyon, and I shared that magnificent bit of luck with my countrymen. Pushing farther up into the country after the bar had played out, I struck one of the tributaries of the Thompson, pay gravel of the richest sort, I was alone, and I decided to work it alone. I had a mule and a billy goat that had followed me when the great camp broke up at American Bar. A haphazard impulse on his part, probably, for he was the forger of the camp, and not a man claimed the least ownership in him. He had probably been lost and won more times at poker than any other bit of property on the face of the earth. Indeed, he was a universal resort of all of us when bankrupted at that lively and fascinating game for two reasons, first because he was no one's property, and second his value was flexible. It had an elastic quality about it, which accommodated the necessities of the man who had lost, and ministered to the amusement of the man who had won. The number of men whom that goat had started on the road to fortune will never be ascertained, and a multitude who, when they had recklessly gambled their last article of value away, with oaths or with laughter, claimed one more deal on the strength of that goat as a personal chattel belonging exclusively to themselves was probably equal to the census of the camp. He had become, therefore, both an inspiration and a consolation to us all, a piece of communal property of accommodating value, 
which every man at one time or another had contemplated with hope or with gratitude an object of universal solicitude and of which american bar was justly proud his temperament and his habits were such as belonged to his genius if his animating principle was ever any other than curiosity surely no one discovered it and if he ever lost an opportunity to hit a man when a favorable one offered it never was known he followed me as my mule ambled out of the camp as he might any other of the six hundred men who were there and attached himself to my fortune with that whimsicalness of motive which is probably explainable only to the mind of a goat his name was percussion a name which with facetious appropriateness had been given to him by a tall alabamian one morning immediately after a personal experience by which the name was suddenly suggested and which caused the christening to be accompanied with considerable profanity i cannot say that my affections were greatly impressed because percussion followed me out of the camp nor did i feel the insinuations of flattery because he thus showed his partiality for my companionship for i had indisputable evidence that in nature he was wholly void of conscience and utterly unable to distinguish between friend and foe nor was i deceived by the apparent amiability of his conduct for during the time he was with me i never dropped my habit of watchfulness or saw any evidence of the conduct of percussion that would warrant my doing so if the old reprobate ever dreamed of reform the vision of the night never affected in the least the habits of the day well you can imagine continued mr pepperell as he lighted a fresh cigar that i worked the fine for all it was worth by eking out my provisions with the help of the trout in the stream i managed to remain in the lonely spot for nearly a month and then being absolutely without provisions i was driven to leave i was the more willing to do so because as nearly as i could estimate i was in possession of fifty thousand dollars worth of dust and nuggets the last evening i spent in the camp i devoted to the arranging for transportation and to the picturing the delights of the future percussion had not lacked entertainment for while i was accumulating wealth he was actively engaged in collecting data for reminiscence the white goats of the mountains so rare south of the national line were plentiful on the crags around my camp and more than once i had been amused in contemplating a contest between percussion and some facsimile of his of the hills a contest which i am bound to say invariably terminated in favor of the champion of the camp it was plainly a case in which civilized training had added to the prowess of nature and steady practice with a variety of subjects made him master of his art i was up with the dawn on the morning set for my departure and started at once for the little intervale a mile or more distant where my mule was grazing i captured it without difficulty and was in the act of mounting when i heard a noise as of a world rushing to ruin the earth shook beneath my feet and the mule trembled with terror i knew what it meant i sprang to his back and spurred him recklessly up the trail I reached the brow of the declivity that overlooked the gulch where I had labored. I need not describe what I saw. The face of the mountain to the west had disappeared, and in the place of a mighty forest was a broad tract of bare rock. The slide had gone down through the gulch and scoured it to the foundation ledges. The transformation was complete. Not a familiar object was left, save one on a cliff fifty feet above the spot where my fortune had been found and lost stood percussion his tail trembling with excitement and his horns lowered 
It was the only opportunity of his life that had passed unimproved. I called him to follow me, but he refused to budge. Perhaps he thought another slide would occur, or had a duel in mind for the morrow. Be that as it may, I left him to his reflections and his engagements, and little thinking that I should ever see him again, I reined my mule down the trail, an utterly despondent man. In spite of the fact that we are listening to a story of misfortune that might well overwhelm with despair any person on whom it had fallen, there was not a sober face in the crowd when Mr. Pepperell had brought us to that point of his narration, which presented him to us in the most pitiable condition. The awful ruin which the savage slide had wrought, percussion on the cliff in the attitude of defiance, the trembling mule and the woe-begone rider thus bereft of his fortune in a minute, all these we saw as of painted and striking colors on a canvas, and yet not a face in our group showed the least evidence that we felt ourselves in the presence of disaster. "'I can see,' said Mr. Pepperell, as he looked in our faces, "'I can see, gentlemen, that you soberly realize the extent of my misfortunes, and appreciate the seriousness of my position. I was busted, I tell you.' for I started on that trail without a dollar in my pocket or a crust in my saddlebags, and yet fortune was nigh, for I had not gone a mile down the trail when I came to a small camp in which I found not only needed refreshment but a speculation which brought me to the beginning of my fortune. The party in whose camp I had thus fortunately stumbled was one of exploration and in the interest of science, and was headed by a scientific man of extraordinary zeal, enormous vanity, vast pretensions, and devoid of common sense. Now, if there is one class of man I venerate more than others, it is the scientific class. It is true I am not given over much to veneration, for as it happens, by some arrangement for which I have never been able to feel myself responsible, in that section of my cranium, where by rights there should be an eminence, is a kind of prairie flatness, a dead level, as it were, it is consoling to think that I am not answerable for this defect, and I have derived great satisfaction in my life by shuffling it off upon my ancestors, when at times conscience rebuked me at some breach of decorum, or most inappropriate burst of laughter. I am happy to reflect that prenatal influences are answerable for the major part of my weaknesses, and, as I devoutly hope, for the majority of my sins." I sincerely trust that they will be punished as they deserve. The more they catch it, the better my chances appear. I am ready to accept without reserve the harshest dogmas of theology so long as they have no application to myself. Nevertheless, in spite of this natural defect in my make-up, I have particular feelings toward the average devotee of science. I recognize in him a superior creation— he is the only being I have ever met whose mind seems able to work wholly independent of facts. The facility with which he invents his needed theories fills me with admiration, and the audacity of his imagination in supplying himself with the necessary data for his conclusions is a source of pleasant surprise. It delights me to recall that the most noted learners of science were certain, a few centuries ago, that the globe was as flat as a shingle, that the whirling earth on which we live had no motion, that the sun, moon, and stars revolved around it as a center and sum of the great universe, that the blood in the human body stood still, and that the worthy successors of these teachers of accurate knowledge 
these men who supplant religion and substitute knowledge for faith and reason for piety are now convinced that all the superficial phenomena of the globe including of course the five great lakes of this continent are accounted for by the almost imperceptible and trivial movement of glaciers any class of men with such a record receive from me the same overwhelming deference which i involuntarily give to defoe and the author of the arabian nights i yield them the respect and admiration due to the chiefest romancers of the race i had no sooner reached his camp than the man of science approached me and made known his mission it was to capture a specimen of the genuine rocky mountain goat i am anxious he explained to obtain possession in the interest of science of a real caper horridus in order that i may not acquire indisputable knowledge of his anatomical structure but fix beyond peradventure and upon this sir learned bodies have most deferred what are his characteristic habits if you can assist me to obtain a specimen you will not only be a humble instrument of extending the boundaries of scientific research but i will remunerate you with the sum which has been put at my disposal by the learned body of men whose president i am namely two hundred and fifty dollars in gold i trust explained mr pepperell humbly that heaven has forgiven me for the duplicity of my conduct at that juncture of my fortunes it was a dreadful temptation you can see gentlemen that it was i was busted the gentleman wanted a caper horridus i knew where he was he was a genuine caper that i knew and as for the horridus part i felt i could safely leave it for the man of science to discover for himself had i reflected i might have acted with greater innocence but as it was without an instant's hesitation i assured the man of science that i knew where there was a genuine caper a veritable horridus of the crags and that i would lead him directly to his habitat but i distinctly declared i would have nothing to do with the capture of the terrible creature and that i must be paid my money in advance the man of science was delighted he paid me the money without an instant's delay fearing doubtless that i would withdraw my offer or lift my price he assured me that he needed no assistance that science had already ascertained that while excessively curious the capo horridus by nature was harmless and that no hands but his own should make the capture the fame of which would carry his name round the world you can see gentlemen that in the case of the two persons animated by motives which inspired both of us there was no reason for delay i hitched my mule therefore in position to facilitate mounting if as i anticipated i should return in a hurry and with the man of science at my heels proceeded directly up the trail i did not know exactly where i should find my former companion but i made no doubt that the old reprobate was still near the path of the landslide and that we should find him in a belligerent mood and sure enough we had not gone more than two-thirds the distance when looking carefully over the top of a boulder standing in an attitude of listening as if anticipating another slide there stood percussion now as you know gentlemen there is a good deal of dynamite in a billy goat it won't do to drop on to one suddenly unless you wish to be lifted any man who runs against a goat suddenly without telegraphing him beforehand acts as if his business education had been neglected 
for a goat is the embodiment of a terrific energy when aroused, and nothing starts him quicker than a sudden appearance. Any man who approaches him without circumspection is liable to lose some part of himself, as it were. More than one man has lost his balance and his self-respect by such carelessness. Both these essentials of standing and character are apt to remain absent during the entire interview. A goat is endowed with great quickness of apprehension, and he acts on his impulses. When a goat of the masculine gender stands and gazes at you with a look of curious deliberation in his eyes, you will, if you are a rational being, promptly pick the nearest tree and get behind it. This is the only wise course to adopt. Nor should you be slow in doing this. It is not safe to take any chances with a billy goat if he is within fifty feet of you and has in his own mind decided to act. You cannot rely on his remaining where he is any considerable length of time. He is apt to move suddenly, and when he moves he always moves in a straight line, and with his objective point clearly in view. To know a goat thoroughly, gentlemen, I am convinced that a man should begin his investigations in childhood. The knowledge needed is not acquired readily by an adult. A man can pilot a steamboat better than a boy, but to steer a goat successfully into a paddock without any back action of the paddles is a feat at which a boy will beat his father every time. The innocent sprightliness of early life is an essential element of success in such an undertaking. A deacon of mature age and dignity of character might do it, but he would never be fit to hold his office after he finished the job. His record would be broken, as it were. What he had gained in fluency of expression he would have lost in resignation of spirit and the sweet placidness of his vocabulary. A deacon should always leave the management of a billy goat to his hired boy and keep out of hearing when the boy and the goat are in close communication, too. Any material departure from this rule will always result in unhappiness. The manners of the goat will be spoiled, and the deacon, if the matter be fully reported, will surely lose his office. A goat is like any other highly organized creation. He learns evil fast and forgets it slowly. He is a creature of vanity and relishes success. After he has learned a man's anatomy by experiment, the knowledge is fixed in his mind forever. Time may obliterate the impression he has made on you, but it never obliterates the impression you have made on him. Years may pass, your hairs may be whiter and his coarser, but if he ever gets a chance to hit you again, your years and venerable appearance will not save you. The old reprobate will hit you in the same spot. I have never been able to satisfactorily explain this to my own mind, but the fact remains. I have seen it demonstrated. Yes, there stood percussion. I ducked my head and beckoned to the man of science. He bounded to my side and, shaking with excitement, peered over the boulder at him. Caper Horidas, he gasped. A genuine caper, a true Horidas, he exclaimed hoarsely. Pedes nigri, corni, circuli, caput, cornutus, genus, hirsutus, habitus, agilius, Omanio amicus, and fumbling in his pocket for his notebook, he dashed around the boulder and started for percussion. I cannot describe what followed. Percussion was at his best or his worst that morning. He had missed one great opportunity and was in no mood to be trifled with. He struck the man of science at the precise spot selected in his own mind, and with the force of a catapult, 
he bowled him past the point of rock behind which I was crouched, as if he had been a pack-basket. His impetus brought him within sight, and he came at me as if I was a landslide. "'You miserable cuss!' I exclaimed. "'Don't you know your benefactor?' And I went up a tree. I yelled to the man of science to light out. He recovered his breath and his legs at the same time and ricocheted down the trail as if fired out of a Columbiad, yelling, "'Caber Horridas! Caber Horridas!' at every jump. After him bounded percussion. Without an instant of hesitation I followed. I had a longing to get on to my mule. The man of science reached the edge of the camp and fell flat, and percussion struck a Chinook Indian in a way to increase his vocabulary. The last jump I made— "'carried me to the back of my mule, "'and I tore down the trail with my heels in her flanks. "'I reached the banks of the Thompson "'and went in at a jump. "'Half across the flood I heard a fusillade, "'and I knew the percussion had at last struck a landslide. "'Rap porridge, gentlemen,' called the conductor. Twenty minutes to see the lake of the woods "'and the great flour mill, the Kiwatin.'" End of chapter 6